listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is from Leviticus 7, and thanks be to God, there's a big gap in the middle. This is the ritual of the guilt offering. It is most holy. At the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered, they shall slaughter the guilt offering, and his blood shall be dashed against all sides of the altar. All its fat shall be offered, the broad tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the appendage of the liver, which shall be removed with the kidneys. The priest shall turn them into smoke on the altar as an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is the same ritual for them. The priest who made atonement with it shall have it. So too the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering shall keep the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared in a pan or on a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. But every other grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to all the sons of Aaron equally. This is the ritual of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the offering of ordination, and the sacrifice of well-being, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai, which he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thanks for that reading, Martha. Thanks for cutting it down. Of course. There was no giggling this week. I'm a little little disappointed, everybody. (laughs) Uh, so actually, I want to start with a question today, uh, out of curiosity. Um, since we've started Leviticus, we're three weeks in. Has anybody cracked open the book of Leviticus and given it a go? A number of you have. Wow. Uh, Jim, how far did you make it? Not to put you on the spot, but this far? Okay, so you got about to this point. Anyone else? Like a chapter, a couple chapters-ish. Anyone read the whole thing? One? Okay, one per- a couple people did. That's awesome. Excellent. Um, for, for any of us who haven't tried cracking this ancient manual for priests open lately, uh, maybe you will after today. We'll see. We'll see um, how this goes. But we are working our way through the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible. It's a book we don't really talk about that much in church because it's weird, right? Like, this is some really strange foreign stuff to us, all the entrails and the, you know, the, here's how you cut up the, and all that Last week, we started talking about sacrifices, and uh, we focused, uh, well, we talked about the sacrificial system of ancient Israel. We actually had this chart uh, that I shared with you all last week. The book of Leviticus opens with seven chapters that unpack five different sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, also known as the olah, the minha the Shelemim, the Hatat, and the Asham, for those of you who prefer the Hebrew. Both of you, I don't know, <laughs> probably not many. 
But um, last week we talked about the significance of these offerings, if you remember. We talked about how uh, the first three are thanksgiving offerings. They're ways of saying thank you to God. Does anyone remember the last two, what they're ways of saying? I'm sorry. Excellent. Yes, the last two, uh, the sin and the guilt offering, are ways of saying sorry if you've wronged God or your neighbor. You all did really great with this last week. You all are doing a fantastic job following along with some really strange stuff. But to make it even easier, to make this even more relatable, more real, I made recipe cards. And I am way too excited about these. If you take a look in your bulletin, uh, you should have two cards in there. You can pull them out now if you want. Um, There should be, uh, if I divide them up right, uh, one for a Thanksgiving offering, one for a guilt offering, um, or purification offering. There are five cards in all, so you can collect with your friends and and get all five if you you want for some reason. Um, We're also going to have extras at the Connection Center, though, for anyone who is curious. And for folks watching this from home online, we didn't leave you out. Uh, If you go to the online worship page of our website, you can actually download a PDF with all of these recipe cards. Um, I have one of these up here. Let's do do the Ola, the burnt offering. Um, Here we go. From the kitchen of Moses. I thought that was a nice touch. Ingredients. One bull, male without blemish. If you can't afford a bull, you can use a ram or a goat. Again, male without blemish. And if you don't have either of those, then a dove or a pigeon will do. Because remember, we talked about this last week. A lot of these sacrifices have a sort of scale of animals based on your means. The book of Leviticus is very concerned with economic justice, with making sure everyone has what they need and everyone can participate regardless of their means. So we get this scale of animals. If you've got a bull, bring a bull. If you've got a goat, bring a goat. If you don't have either of those, just catch a bird and you can participate, which I think is awesome. Uh, Let's see the directions here. Apologies to anyone who's squeamish. Step one, bring your animal to the tent of meeting. Lay your hand on the animal's head. It shall be acceptable on your behalf. Slaughter the bull, ram, or goat for birds. The priest will wring off the head. The priest will then drain the blood from the animal and offer it to God, sprinkling it on all sides of the altar. Yum. Skin and butcher the animal, cutting it into parts. Allow the priest to keep the skin. Arrange the wood for the fire on the altar. Wash the legs and the entrails with water. Then arrange all the parts of the animal on top of the wood before finally turn the whole thing into smoke, which means burn it. It is an offering of fire, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's basically chapter one of the book of Leviticus in the form of a recipe card. That's what's going on there. Um, Now, I don't want you to try this at home. That's not the goal of these. Um, If anyone's goat goes missing this week, we're going to know it was one of you. But what you can do this week, if you're feeling brave, especially if you haven't cracked open this book yet, is you can actually try reading the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. It's only five pages in our pew Bibles, so not a lot of text to get through. Um, It is a little confusing, it's a bit repetitive, but try using these cards as a guide and see if that makes it any easier. You might be surprised how a little perspective shift can affect this. 
Now, I know we've got some questions about sacrifices, right? I know for a fact a number of us have questions because you emailed me last week. And so, so last week we talked about the what. We talked about the significance of sacrifices. But I promised you all that today we would dig into the why. Why did they do this? Let's, uh, let's get into that. What we're going to do, um, I have really landed on three questions we're going to look at. Three questions which I think give us kind of a broad scope of the various questions we might have around these. I got one this morning that I hadn't even thought of, so you probably have more. Um, but three questions we're going to look at today. The first, why were they killing animals? Pretty basic, good, valid question. Second, what's with all the blood? Why all these strangely specific steps with the blood? And then finally, why offer sacrifices to begin with? Why even do this? Why were they killing animals? What's with all the blood? And why offer sacrifices at all? Does that sound like a good roadmap for the next 20 minutes? Are we pumped? I can see, I can see excitement. No. All right, let's get into this. Let's get into this, and let's start with um, the first question. Why were they killing animals? Out of curiosity, how many animal lovers do we have in here? Pet owners, vegans, that's most of you. Yeah, folks who, like, you just can't stomach all this violence with animals. I'm right there with you on that, by the way. Um, I'm allergic to pretty much every animal, so I tend to, like, keep my distance from livestock, and I've never had a pet or anything like that. Um, but I also faint at the sight of blood, so, so this stuff is gross to me. Um, I laugh a lot, but that's mostly a defense mechanism, just so we're, just so we're clear. Um, so some of you might not know this, but we actually have animals that live in the church. We have bats that live in the two towers. Some of you have had close encounters with the bats. Every once in a while, they come down to say hello. Um, and I remember it was maybe a year and a half ago now, maybe two years ago, um, I was in the sanctuary one week with Doc and Sue Kavanaugh, and we found a little bat that was just tucked in the corner over here in like the front of the sanctuary. It's just kind of scrunched up. We tried to shoo it to get it to go out a window. We were like stomping on the ground trying to scare it away, but it wouldn't move. And when you get close to it, it would like hiss at you. It was, it was, it was uh, terrifying. So my first instinct was to call an exterminator, right? That was that. I know, I know, I know you're judging me already. But my first thought was like, I love this church. <laughs> My first thought was, like, call a barbarist or someone like that to come and, you know, take care of it. Was my, I'm a city kid. Um, but Sue would have none of that. Sue Kavanaugh went and grabbed our bat net because we have a bat net. She came in here. She, like, gently draped the bat net over this hissing bat. She took, like, a folder or something and slid it underneath, picked the whole thing up, then walked right outside and released the bat in the grass where it flew away. Sue Kavanaugh saved that bat's life. Absolutely. Now, Sue's here today. Sue, you would not have done well in an ancient Israelite worship service, I don't think. Yeah, you, wouldn't have, you probably wouldn't have been leading worship at the temple. Uh, where, like, a crucial part of their worship was the ritual killing of animals. Why were they doing this? 
Before we get too judgy, uh, we should acknowledge that Tyson and Purdue kill way more animals than they did at the temple. Our modern like meat processing industry puts the ancient Israelites to shame. And uh, we don't like gently place our hand on the animals' heads anymore and kind of reverently go through it. No, the, the animals we consume, for those of us who eat meat, I'm a meat eater, um, they have relatively terrible lives. Very short, very uncomfortable. They don't die well. And the book of Leviticus, we're going to see uh, in a couple chapters, has an opinion on what you eat and how you treat your food. Remember, though, the Israelites ate most of these animals. Like, some of the offerings would be totally burnt up and offered to God, but for the most part, most of this food was consumed, either by the priests or by the worshipers, the people who came to the temple, because worship was a feast. Now, when we do a feast here at church, when we have a potluck, it's a pretty simple process, right? Like, it's pretty easy to do a church potluck. You can throw one of those together in a few hours, or in a week, maybe. Because we have things like refrigerators and supermarkets and crockpots, right? But imagine if we didn't have any of that. Imagine if we were living in like an ancient agrarian society where there were no refrigerators, no supermarkets, no crockpots. Imagine if we were in an ancient society and we wanted to do a potluck. How would we do it? There's more, though. Imagine, to further complicate things, in this hypothetical scenario, imagine if the only church in the state was in Albany for some reason. So we've got to get to Albany for a potluck, and there's no crockpots, no refrigerators, no supermarkets. What would we do? If we are imagining an ancient agrarian society where we're all farmers and hunters, we'd probably have some animals around, right? So we'd probably get together, um, we'd round up some sheep, some goats, maybe a couple bulls, and we would make the trip. We would caravan down. You'd want to find animals that were strong enough to survive the, the trip, healthy animals, strong animals, maybe a male without blemish. Not going to take a female animal and endanger the whole herd, right, for this trip. We'd round up all these animals in a caravan, and we would make the trip on foot to Albany. Now, if we also assume there's no hotels, no kitchens in the temple, you can't just, like, go to a local butcher and have things taken care of, we'd all be showing up to the Baptist temple in Albany with a bunch of farm animals, it would probably be a good idea if the people who run the temple, the priests, know what to do. Know how to process, how to kill the animals, how to dispose of the parts you don't want to eat, how to butcher it and all of that. Do you see what the sacrificial system was about? Do you see why they were doing this and why this was so important? Does this kind of make a bit more sense now? Any potluck fans here? For the ancient Israelites, your pastor was also your butcher. And if you're someone who just escaped slavery in Egypt, you're probably only eating meat a couple times a year, if you're lucky. So this meal, this is sacred. 
We might want to do this in like a religious setting with some ritual, and that is how you get sacrifices. Second why question, to flesh this out a bit more. Why all the blood? What's with all this ritual concerning blood? After the priest drains the blood from the animal, they sprinkle a little bit on the altar. Some goes uh, in the worship space. We see a little bit later in Leviticus that the blood also gets sprinkled on the priests and the worshipers. Why all the blood? I would faint (laughs) at one of these. Some of these instructions are just the basics of like safely disposing of blood. You've got a lot of animals, it's dirty, there's no showers, so you want to make sure people know what to do with all the fluids. Um, but there's more to it than that. And we get an answer actually in Leviticus chapter 17. It's with these laws against eating blood. Drinking the blood of an animal was a big no-no for the ancient Israelites, so sorry, no blood sausage. Um, but here's why, this is the explanation In Leviticus 17, beginning in verse 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut that person off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar." The life of the flesh is in the blood. This passage uses the language of atonement, which literally means like to cover or to cover over. You don't eat the blood of an animal because the life of that animal is in the blood, and that blood is supposed to cover you. The Israelites believed that God was dangerous. If you read a bit of the Old Testament, this comes through pretty clearly. But being in God's presence was dangerous. It was like handling plutonium or getting too close to the sun. God's power was so much that a mortal, finite human being couldn't take it. But the Israelites also believed that the life of a living thing, the life of an animal, is found in their blood. Which makes sense, right? You lose too much blood, you die but they believed there was a sort of mystical power in the blood, a spiritual power. That if you took the blood of an animal, and if a priest anointed you with that blood, if that blood was sprinkled in the worship space, it would act as a sort of protective covering. The life force, the energy, the lifeblood of that animal would shield you so that you and the priest could stand in God's presence without fear. That's why when a sacrifice was offered, they'd drain the blood, they'd sprinkle some on the altar, some would go on the priest, and some would go on the offerer. Now, this all sounds a little bit silly to us, right? 3,000 years later, (laughs) a little chronological snobbery there, maybe. But if you read the New Testament, or if you look at a lot of the language we still use to talk about Jesus and the cross, if you read our hymns, if you read a book like Hebrews uh, in the New Testament where the author uses this language to talk about the death of Christ, how Jesus is our high priest who ascends to the heavenly temple, who dashes his own blood against the altar and sprinkles it on us to atone for us. It's the exact same language the Israelites were using 
and it comes from the book of Leviticus. That's why the blood was so important. Leaves us with one last question. Why did they offer sacrifices in the first place? Like, why even do this? I love potlucks too, but like, why not slaughter the animal outside the worship space and then take it in? Why this merging of like spirituality and religion with all this process? One thing we know about the ancient world is that it was really common to offer sacrifices. Everybody did this in this part of the world back then. The the Hittites, the Moabites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the ritual killing and consuming of animals was a normal part of worship. And to understand why that is, you've got to imagine yourself living in the ancient world. The earliest forms of religion, when human beings were still hunting and gathering their food, when the first farmers were starting to emerge. We're going way back. Ancient humans had this understanding that their well-being, their lives, depended on forces that were ultimately beyond their control. They called these forces gods, with a little g, and they knew that you had to keep the gods happy. You have to keep the gods on your side. If the hunt is not successful, my family starves. If the rains don't come and the crops don't grow, that could be game over for the entire village. So you have to keep the gods on your side. So after a good harvest or a successful hunt, you would take a portion of the crop or maybe a part of the animal that you would capture, you would, what do the hunters call it, captured, caught, whatever. You take a portion of the, of the hunt. You'd go to a high place, like a mountain, somewhere closer to the gods, right? Because the gods are up there. Where do the rains come from? Up there, exactly. You'd build an altar in that high place. And then you would take your crop or whatever and you'd offer it to the gods to say thank you, to show your gratefulness for a good harvest. But what if the rains didn't come? What if there's a drought? Well, same deal. Then you would take an animal, maybe a goat or a sheep, you'd take that to the high place, you'd kill it, you'd offer it there as a sort of barter with the gods to prove your worthiness. And what if the rains still don't come? After a few weeks, after a month, you're desperate. You take another goat, you take two goats, you take a lamb, you take your bull. What can I do? What can I offer the gods to prove my worthiness? If you've read much of the Old Testament, you know where this goes. If the gods won't accept my goats, if they won't accept my bull, maybe they'll accept my son. He's going to starve anyway. Maybe if I offer a child to the gods, maybe then I'll prove my loyalty. We know that child sacrifice happened back then. It was common in this part of the world. It happened even among the Israelites at times. And in a world like that, in that sort of society, the book of Leviticus is revolutionary. And that's not overselling it. 
This book opens with seven chapters on sacrifice. That was unheard of. Step-by-step instructions, here's what you do, here's where you go, here's where, what you offer, here are the steps, here's how you, what you do with the blood, here's how you arrange the parts of the animal on the altar. Step-by-step instructions so that you knew exactly where you stood with this God. That was a new idea at the time. A God who actually speaks to you, who tells you what is required. Are you worried about the rains? Well, did you offer a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving? You followed all the steps? You did a purification offering just in case? Well, then you're good. You're fine. You don't owe anything else. God isn't angry with you. God isn't angry with you. You have nothing to prove. All you have to do is trust. We look at these practices today, these sacrifices, and we see them as barbaric, 3,500 years ago, perspective. But in the world of Leviticus, these sacrifices are beautiful. And they are revolutionary. Because they point us to the truth that we have nothing to prove. God isn't angry with you. God isn't waiting for you to demonstrate your worthiness. God loves you and desires relationship with you. That's where this is heading. A bit later in the Bible, uh, by the time we get to the prophets, we're going to find out that God doesn't even want our sacrifices. Another new idea that comes on the scene. Um, This whole system was a concession to us. God meeting us where we were at. We're the ones who needed this. If you don't believe me, check this out from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one. This is one of like a dozen or so passages like this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? God's saying, I never asked for this. But here's what God actually does want. Verse 16. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Isaiah chapter 1. God doesn't need our sacrifices. There's a reason we don't do this anymore. There's another step forward from Isaiah And that's found in the Gospels. It's because God loved us so much that God stepped in and provided the ultimate sacrifice. The one sacrifice to bring an end to sacrifices. God gave a sacrifice to us to prove God's faithfulness to us That's the revolutionary message of the gospel. 
that God loved us so much that God took on flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus walked among us, worked among us, bringing healing and life. And then he handed himself over, not to a priest, but to a soldier. Not at a temple, but at a different high place, the cross, an altar to human violence and death. And it was through that offering, through Christ's sacrifice, that death was defeated and we were made clean once and for all. God's not angry with you. God isn't out to get you. God demonstrated God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still pursuing the way of violence and destruction and death, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All we have to do is trust. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news that there is nothing for us to prove, nothing for us to earn, nothing for us to merit, just grace. God, we thank you for sending your son, for taking on flesh and becoming the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Lord, help us to trust in that sacrifice. Help us to believe in your love for us and to live into the good news of that love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.